welcome to the Black and Green Podcast. It's your go-to place to find the latest high-quality, all-natural products created by Black artisans. Hosted by yours truly, Dr. Kristen H., the founder of Black and Green, we'll discuss all things health, wellness, self-care, and of course, self-love. This podcast features a refreshing lineup of guests, from entrepreneurs and artisans to holistic lifestylists and clean beauty experts and a plethora of other innovators within the wellness industry. Join me as we learn from the best of the best. Welcome back to the Black and Green Podcast. We are so excited to have you with us. We have one of our newest artisans with us today, Dr. Ann Bill. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So if you can just start off by telling me a little bit about who you are and kind of the products that you created. Sure. So um, my name is uh, Ann Beal, as you said, although I prefer to go by Dr. Ann uh, for this work. And really started this because of my daughters who have incredibly sensitive skin. And I was always finding myself in the kitchen making butters and oils and soaps and, and things like that. And um, as they grew up and then entered into their uh, 20s, they needed to continue to really think about the products that they were using on their skin. But as their needs changed, there were fewer and fewer options available for them. And so I started to realize that part of their challenge was not unique. And so really wanted to develop something that is really responsive to the needs of people who have melanin-rich skin, as well as addresses our needs, particularly once we start to get a little bit older and are starting to think about prevention and anti-aging and things along those lines. So really seeing that there was a need in my family and then it was reinforced as I I traveled and saw what other people were working with and what they were trying to do. So decided to create absolute joy as a result. That's awesome. So you kind of talked about the needs of melanin-rich skin. What are some of the specific needs of melanin-rich skin? Or what are some ingredients that we should be looking to add to our routines? Sure. So, I mean, the first thing that everybody thinks about is uh, our propensity for hyperpigmentation. So um, one of the things I say is if you look too hard at my skin, I'll get a mark. So anything that happens which causes inflammation, whether it's from the sun or acne or cut, anything like that, will tend to leave dark marks on our skin, and they can take weeks to months to go away. Um, The other issue, though, is that we tend to be much more sensitive. And so when I was in medical school, we learned about this concept called the atopic triad, which says that um, people who have asthma and hay fever are also more likely to have sensitive skin or atopic skin. And while we know a lot about the fact that um, Blacks and Latinos have higher rates of asthma and allergies, no one is talking about the fact that our skin is also much more sensitive. And as I started this journey with absolute joy and started to look at some of the um, data that was out there, I found that, in fact, Black women are twice as likely to report having sensitive skin. So I knew that there was something that was special there. And then the other big issue, which was something that I experienced personally, is that from an aging perspective, we age differently. So everybody knows, and we talk about black don't crack, but the fact is, is that black still does age, but the way that we age is different. 
And so we don't necessarily get the fine lines and wrinkles, but we do get the hyperpigmentation and the dark marks. And so as we think about anti-aging formulas, what we need are formulas that really address um, that discoloration issue. And really, there's less of a concern about the wrinkles, at least until much, much later than in some of our, our, our white colleagues. And then the last thing is that we actually tend to have oily skin and we're much more likely to have oily skin and adult acne um, into pretty late in life. And as a result, that means that the products that we need need to really be non-comedogenic, they need to be light, but also it goes back to that anti-aging. A lot of the products that are anti-aging are just too heavy for our skin because we tend to be oily. And so you combine that with the fact that they're not really addressing our issues around hyperpigmentation, then it becomes a challenge. So the four things really are the sensitivity, the hyperpigmentation, the differences in aging, and, and the fact that our skin tends to be much more oily. Mm. And what are ingredients that we should look for in our products to address sort of those four areas? Are there any kind of rock stars? Are there things that you think that we should avoid? So the very first thing is I think everyone beginning maybe at 15 should start to use vitamin C. Um, because it is a significant antioxidant. And um, what it really helps us to do is what we want to do is prevent damage to our skin. We want our skin to stay calm um, because any kind of inflammation is what then leads to those dark marks. So if you think about acne as inflammation or sun damage as inflammation, all of those ultimately will, will lead to dark marks. And what vitamin C does is it helps to calm the skin as well as then it has all these benefits in terms of helping to build collagen and helping to brighten, not lighten the skin, but to brighten it by uh, eliminating some of those um, dark marks. And so most of the products that we have really all start with vitamin C, all start with um, moisture to help try to calm the skin and are really focused on maintaining a healthy approach to the skin in order to really reduce the inflammation and to help keep it calm. The other thing that I would say is what we don't put in is as important as what we do put in. And the number one thing that causes people to have reactions are fragrances and dyes. So no dyes, no perfumes, no fragrances, no unnecessary ingredients, because anytime you add something, it increases the likelihood that someone's going to have a bad reaction. So there's a real purity of the ingredients as well as a purity of the formulations that we pay attention to, to make sure that it really um, not only helps to calm the skin, but then doesn't cause any type of reactions. Mm, that's interesting. So this word fragrance always gives me such a heartburn because mm -hmm. it can mean so many things, particularly when you see it on the back of packaging. We have synthetic fragrance and natural fragrance and fragrance oils and essential oils. So when you say no fragrance, are you including essential oils? Are you talking about synthetic fragrance? Fragrance oils are just all of the above or not good for the skin? All of the above. And the fact is, is that, you know, I might be able to use one type of uh, fragrance oil, but it might cause reaction for you. Um, and so everyone is quite individualized. And the fact is, is that the best way to try to produce a product so that it can be used by the uh, largest number of people is to put none of that stuff in there. So if it does not have a, a, a medical need or if it doesn't have a real 
a role in terms of the skin benefits, then it is not in our products. And so while these fragrances are nice and, and a lot of people really enjoy them, it just increases the likelihood that someone's going to have a reaction. And it doesn't matter if it's natural or not. It's just something which is really um, not necessary for the benefit and the effectiveness of the product. And so we don't put it in there. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So can you tell me about the first product that you have launched in your line and kind of why you picked this as the first product? Sure. So it all started with the fact that um, a lot of our products really start with oils. And this was really because of my own journey. So I myself have very oily skin and for years and years was really working to reduce the oil. And at night I'm washing my face and using acids to clean my skin. And then I would wake up looking like just all slicked over my face. And during the day, my skin was really oily and um, my makeup would slide off my face by uh, lunchtime. And so when I actually went and was living overseas, um, I was living in Paris and there they use a lot of botanicals. And so as I was using um, different products to address some of my dark marks, I discovered rosehip oil, which is something that's very commonly used over there. And at first I was hesitant to use it because I didn't want to put an oil, another oil on my face. Um, but because it was so highly recommended, decided to do that. And what I discovered was not only did it help with my dark marks, but it actually helped to reduce my daytime oiliness. And what I finally realized is that I was stripping so much oil away from my skin by keeping it clean and by over cleansing it, that my skin was actually reacting because it was becoming dehydrated. So it was producing more oil. And so by adding the rosehip oil to my nighttime routine, I found in fact that my skin was much more hydrated and that my daytime oiliness in fact went down. And so starting with that focus on the oil that led me on the path to looking at all the oils, the rosehip, the moringa, the evening primrose, and really all of the benefits that they um, provide for skin. And so that led me to then create the oil that we have, which has a lot of those ingredients. I also wanted to add um, actives that we know really work and are effective. And so wanted to um, add retinol, which is a really great ingredient to use for your skin. It sometimes causes issues with dryness. And so by putting it in an oil, you actually reduce the likelihood that you would have that dryness. And then I also found a vitamin C, which is fat soluble to really help boost the antioxidant component of um, this oil. So all of those came together to really help me uh, develop the formula, but also it was a great way to introduce the brand because with skincare, it usually takes two to four weeks for people to really see a benefit. And this was one of the uh, products when I was first testing with friends and family that people really saw an immediate benefit to their skin generally within a week. And um, so I said, this would be the great product to really start um, to introduce people to absolute joy because they could try it and see it and see a benefit in a relatively quick period of time. So Christian, I can't hear you if you're saying anything. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> so um, I think that that's really interesting that you mentioned that it takes two weeks or more, um, or two to four weeks to really see a difference from a new skincare regime. So it kind of set our expectations when we're trying something new. I know I've also have heard that you shouldn't 
know, try too many different products or you shouldn't switch your products too often. Or sometimes when you're switching to a new product, your face might react negatively, but to give it time. Is there any truth to some of these things or is this kind of more old wise tales? Well, this whole concept, you know, a lot of people talk about this, the purge, and actually um, some retinol products really will um, cause this type of purge. But I think particularly if you have sensitive skin, um, you have to really be respectful of the fact that your skin can react. So, you know, every everybody says you should, you know, test it on your wrist or behind your ear for 48 hours uh, before using any new products. And if your skin is really that sensitive, then that is an absolute must. But I think in the beauty space in general, I had a friend who said, you know, the thing about perfume is you spray it on, it settles in, and you know within 10 minutes if you like it. Mm-hmm. If it's about your hair, then you can you know, spend 30 minutes doing your hair, you'll know whether it has an, an effect. If it's um, makeup, same thing, 20 minutes to put on your makeup, you'll see it immediately. But with skincare, it really is about more than just the appearance, but it's also about the health of your skin. And so that really does take um, fully at least two weeks before you really do see a change. So I would say, yes, I think most people should go really slowly, particularly if they have um, sensitive skin. And even as I've now been testing not only my own products, but a lot of other products, I will really see something start to um, take hold after about two weeks of consistent use. And so you really have to have patience um, but it's not unlike exercise or any kind of approach that really is about health. You cannot expect to have an overnight change, you will, but you will see a change if you're consistent with what you're doing from a healthy perspective. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's it's, it's a matter of there is no such thing as a magic bullet. Um, and I think any any product really that tries to promise this overnight instantaneous success, if it does work, it's probably really harmful. Like that's kind of my um, claim to fame. If you can lose 15 pounds and two hours, uh, probably not good for you. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a natural way to lose weight. Nope, nope, nope. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I get a lot of questions about I, using oils. And you kind of mentioned earlier how more melanated skin and black women tend to have oily skin. And so we are very shy from putting oils on our skin. And you talked a little bit about how you got more comfortable with putting oils on your skin. Can you just kind of help us understand why the oils work for even someone with oily skin? Sure. So I completely understand that because I also have oily skin. So who wants to put more oil onto your skin? It just doesn't seem to make sense. But the fact is, is your body is naturally producing oil or sebum to protect your skin. And it's doing it primarily to um, help do two things. One is to help keep your skin hydrated. And then also we produce um, a fine phospholipid barrier called the acid mantle, which helps to protect our skin. And so oil really has a very important role in terms of maintaining our skin health. And when we are constantly trying to strip it away, when we're constantly trying to remove the oil to wash it away or use alcohol-based products, then what we're doing is fighting against what our skin is naturally trying to do. However, if we take the approach of adding not only oil but moisture to our skin, if we take the approach of maintaining the acid mantle and really uh, uh, focusing on maintaining the integrity of that phospholipid barrier, then what it does is it gives our skin what it needs and it helps to really keep it in its natural state. So in that 
case, then the skin is not then producing more oil to fight against what we're trying to do, which is to wash it all away. So one of the bylines that we've developed for Absolute Joy is to work with your skin, not against it, but it's to really understand what it requires and what you need to give it in order to um, have it stay healthy. Mm, that's interesting. I kind of want to take a, a turn here and talk about the importance of products being natural and not toxic. I know that you talked about sensitivity and trying not to kind of flare up those sensitivities, but there's been a growing body of research that's connecting the toxic ingredients and products that are marketed to black women with adverse health events and reverse health outcomes. Kind of how are you grappling with that? And what are, what's some advice that you have for people who want to become more conscientious about the products that they're using? Yes, I'm so glad you raised that because at the time, to be frank, when I first started with Absolute Joy, I thought about it from the sensitivity perspective, but it was actually after reading a report that showed that 40% of products that are marketed to us tend to have uh, toxic ingredients or ingredients that are on different banned lists as compared to 25% of products that are marketed to others. It not only made me kind of aware of this issue, but it frankly also made me angry because a lot of my work in health and healthcare has been about disparities. And I said to myself, here too, really, even in this situation, can we have like no space where we are safe and no space where we're equitably treated? And so that's why I personally felt that it would be very important to have a focus on this. But I also know medically it's really important. The skin is the largest organ that we have. Its ability to absorb um, things from the environment and to absorb from what we put on it is uh, quite robust. And so we really have to pay attention to it. I personally am a vegan and I do it for um, health and lifestyle reasons and really pay attention to what I put into my body. So it makes as much sense that I would focus on what I put onto my body. And so similarly, um, I think many of us really develop a real awareness around it, frankly, when we become mothers and we pay, really pay attention to what we're putting into our bodies at that time. But the fact is, is over the course of our lifetimes, whether we're young, whether we're mothers or we're breastfeeding or um, taking care of ourselves or really preparing ourselves as we start to get older, the, the toxic load that exists from heavy metals, from pollution, from the stuff that is in our food, um, really has an impact on health. And I think the more that we're aware of that and the more that we try to, frankly, protect ourselves, then the better we are for um, ourselves as well as then for our children and our families. Now we will pause for a moment of meditation with Dr. Crystal Jones. So whether you're listening to this podcast as you're walking down the street or in your car, in your home, or in your bed, just want you to find a comfortable position where you can relax and take focus on what's happening right now. And as we do this, I want you to focus on your breath, focusing on the fact that your answers are always in your breath, feeling your breath not judging it, but experiencing what it feels like. If you're able to, you can close your eyes. If not, just keep your focus. 
Notice where your breath is racing through. Where are you trying to meet so many deadlines in life? Notice where your breath is moving in the same cycle or feeling stuck. Where are you in destructive cycles in life? Where are you not changing the script, but only changing the characters in the play? Just take a moment and notice what your breath feels like and how it relates to your life. Deep breath in. And as you exhale, let everything go that's not serving you. Reminding yourself that you can keep anything that you want to keep. You can let go of anything you want to let go of. But honoring your truth in this breath. As you're breathing in, you're creating. As you're breathing out, you're creating space for what it is that you desire. Little by little, letting go of what's not serving you and honoring the spaces that ask you to hold on at this moment, taking your time and being present. Continuing this breath, until you feel like you've let go of everything that's standing in the way of creating what you desire. And as you feel like you've let everything go, bring the awareness back into your body. Back into the space of wholeness. Come back into the space of truth. And move forward, knowing that you're whole always and that you are the one that you've been looking for. I hope that you enjoyed the meditation with Dr. Crystal. Sometimes we all need a reminder to just stop and take a break, stop and clear our minds, stop and be present. But now we're going to hop back into the conversation with our artisan. Mm, I, that's so interesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about your background and sort of your education? Sure. So I'm a physician by training um, and actually a pediatrician. I practiced for many, many years and um, then started to move more into the research space. And so I was doing research for many years and um, then from there, I actually moved into the policy space. And I have been doing mm -hmm. a lot of work in the last few years on issues of policy and practice. And, and the way that I define policy is that it is uh, the determination of who gets what and when in healthcare. And it is the determination of resources, who has access and who is able to get um, the needed services. And a lot of people who are involved with these policy discussions have actually never worked directly with patients. Mm. So there's a lot of politicians and a lot of lawyers and a lot of other people, but not necessarily uh, people who can express the voice of the patient. So some of these policy decisions that are made really need to reflect a perspective that comes from the patient. And that's really been my work. Mm. That's really interesting because I worked at Johns Hopkins Hospital for about six or seven years and I've met a lot of physicians and I am very hard pressed to find physicians who acknowledge and kind of recognize the role that 
like uh, the foods that we're eating might have on our outcomes or the kind of the value of being a vegan or the understanding the products that we have. So to me, it feels like you are different than the typical physician. Where did that come from? Have you found something similar? Do you feel like you exist a little bit different from your other colleagues? So I, I think your observations are quite true. And frankly, I think it's a function of um, the lack of training that we have um, in this space. But if you really think about it, the whole field of nutritional science is relatively new. So Mm -hmm. 100 years ago, we were talking about nutrition in terms of fats, carbohydrates, and proteins. And that was it. And then we started to talk about vitamins, and now we're talking about micronutrients. And so I think the whole science of nutrition is still a relatively young science. And it, it, it frankly is a standalone science and has not yet really worked its way into medical education. Mm-hmm. But going back to this concept of inflammation, I remember when I was in medical school, one of the first things that they taught us was about inflammation. And essentially, I was like, why are we spending weeks learning about inflammation and how to find it and what the meaning is? But inflammation is either causes diseases or is an indicator of disease. And so when you think about it, whether it is um, autoimmune conditions or heart disease or cancer or any, even infections, you will always find indications of inflammation associated with those conditions. And um, we learned a lot about antioxidants and their role in helping to reduce inflammation. And that was when I started to think, hmm, so if antioxidants are so important, then why don't we then focus on bringing them more into our diet? And why don't we focus on thinking about them as a mechanism to treat disease if inflammation is an underlying uh, root cause or or associated with all of these uh, conditions? And again, it is not really part of our own medical training, but fast forward many years where um, I actually discovered uh, a book called The China Study, which talked a lot about the role of plant-based diets. And what I really liked about that book is that um, the person who wrote it actually um, was very much a supporter of uh, drinking milk, and he was the son of a dairy farmer, and he wanted to show the benefits of milk, but all of his research actually showed the exact opposite. And the research was good. So I went and I looked at that research that he quoted. I looked at the articles that um, he cited that came from the medical literature. And I was like, there's really a very compelling case that um, he made. And then I combined that with, I just happened to have had meals with a number of colleagues over the course of maybe six month period, many of whom had decided to go to a plant-based diet and um, and so decided to do it myself. And when I did it, I said, I'll just do it for 60 days. And I felt so much better that I was like, this is an absolute lifestyle change. Absolutely. Mm, that is amazing. I think that it provides a level of, of rigor. And um, I know that oftentimes when you're trying to assess what wellness changes to make and where do you get your wellness information, it can feel so overwhelming. And mm-hmm. you know, have a hard time telling, well, what is real and what's evidence-based? But then at the same time, I know for me, I struggle even with evidence-based because there's a lot of politics that goes into what studies get funded and what studies don't get funded and what studies you actually know about and which ones kind of get never published and get pushed under the rug because corporations can have so much influence over 
it's research dollars. So even right. trying to be evidence-based in of itself isn't enough. And so it can oftentimes feel overwhelming to figure out what's real and, and what's not. Um, I remember having a, a heated conversation with my, one of our uh, docs about soda. Mm-hmm. And she put her whole argument on the fact that there's no studies to prove that soda is bad for you. And therefore, it must be okay. That's actually wrong. Right. So, <laughs> so, so I don't know what literature she's reading, but uh, no, there's a there's a good literature that shows that it is bad for you. Maybe she's looking at the medical literature, but there's also public health literature, there's nutritional mm-hmm. literature, there's even economic literature. So you have to kind of broaden your thinking to move outside of your primary mm-hmm. area of expertise. Yeah. Um, but I, I think you raise a good point because oftentimes it's only as good as the science that's out there, but the science yeah. requires funding. It requires um, someone who's willing to ask the questions and it requires someone who's willing to then publish those findings. So, so for example, when I was doing a lot of research, it was in the area of health disparities and every place we looked, black folks were doing worse. And one of the questions that I said is I was like, okay, I'm, I'm tired of studying the problem. I want to study the solutions. So we would often look at um, questions to say, so under what conditions are Black people having equal outcomes or maybe even better outcomes? And what I found is that when we found that um, and we submitted those articles for uh, peer review, the editors were like, well, this is there was no difference. And I was like, but that's the story. The story is, is that there is no difference. And we know that you know, when it's intervention X or setting Y, that Black people do just as well, that is the story. And so it was a sort of paradigm shift because they were used to telling the problem, but they were Mm. used to talking about the solution. And And I think that that is really important because a part of the issue is if we don't talk about the solution or if we don't talk about the structural kind of... um, like kind of the structural things that exist mm-hmm. that create some of these d- disparities, then it be- the narrative becomes there's just something inherently wrong with Black people. Exactly. Um, or they're, if they're inherently making choices that are just not for their best interest and, and sort of the onus is on them. So I think right. it's really interesting to shift that conversation and know there's more at play here than just a series of bad choices. Exactly. And one of the things that I used to always talk about is, you know, way back in the day, we used to have offices of minority health. And we talked about in health and healthcare, public health, minority health, as if somehow that was different. Mm. And in the 90s, when there was this shift to talking about disparities, it doesn't seem like that was a big